Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 116. jump into this week's episode, I'd like to announce that in the coming months, we will be starting to experiment with presenting short messages from partner organizations and sponsors at the beginning and end of the show. But you'll only be hearing sponsorship messages from organizations whose missions fit within the mission of our podcast. And of course, we will continue to bring you the same engaging conversations that you're used to hearing. But if you have any thoughts or feedback on this new approach, please share. We'd love to hear from you. You can visit the show notes page for this episode at wildlensinc.org slash EOC116 to leave a comment or shoot us a message. We are now very excited to announce that this episode of the podcast was made possible by the support of Advocates for the West. Advocates for the West is a nonprofit public interest environmental law firm based in Boise, Idaho, with additional offices in Portland, Oregon, and Washington, D.C. They provide free legal services to environmental organizations to defend and protect public lands and wildlife and ensure sustainable communities throughout the American West. They have over 35 conservation partners with a 14-year history of winning over 85% of their cases. And when you support Advocates for the West, it advances the endeavors of all of their conservation partners. Recently, Advocates for the West filed the nation's first lawsuit against the new administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt, under the Clean Water Act, imploring the EPA to create a temperature pollution budget for the Columbia and Snake Rivers in Oregon and Washington. They named Pruitt as the defendant in hopes of forcing him to acknowledge the urgent need for the EPA to write a plan to keep the rivers cool enough for salmon and steelhead in the face of climate change. The urgency of this situation was made even more evident in 2015 when warming waters killed roughly 250,000 adult sockeye salmon migrating up the rivers, and their numbers continue to decline. Now more than ever, we need to defend and protect our public lands and wildlife for future generations. To help them continue the fight for our West's natural resources and learn more about their cases, visit their website at www.advocateswest.org. That's www.advocateswest.org. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I am your host, Serena Simons, and my guest today on the show is Beth Pratt. She's the California Director for the National Wildlife Federation, and she has spearheaded the hashtag Save LA Cougars campaign and helped raise a lot of awareness for uh, mountain lion research. And uh, what I'm really, really interested in is the proposed wildlife crossing at Liberty Canyon in Southern California. So welcome to the show, Beth. It's so nice to have you. Thanks for having me, Serena. It's a pleasure to be here. So why don't we start, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do with the National Wildlife Federation? Yeah, I really, and I don't just say this, I mean it, I really do have the best job in the world. It is, <laughs> I get to um, work all around the beautiful state of California um, on wildlife conservation projects for the National Wildlife Federation. Um, when I was a kid, I read Ranger Rick, 
magazine. So it's especially special to be working for an organization that helped shape me as a future conservationist, um, but also to make a meaningful difference here in a state that is my adopted home. Uh, I grew up in Massachusetts and, you know, I'm a proud Bostonian, but a Californian <laughs> by choice. Uh, I love it here. Just uh, one of the reasons the weather, obviously, but um, the natural world here, you just, you got everything. You know, I've, um, we got coastline, we got desert, we got mountains, we got foothills. It, it's, it's an amazing place to live from just the wildlife that surrounds us. And how about um, your interest in mountain lions specifically? Yeah, they are just such. Have you ever seen one? Oh uh, yeah, or, yeah. They <laughs> uh, they really are. I mean, it's, I've been lucky enough to see them four times, and uh, it's just such a magical, magical experience. Although I think you know any wildlife sighting is uh, to me magical. I was just mm-hmm. photographing ladybugs and bees yesterday, and it, I had the same response in some respects. <laughs> uh, but you know, they are to me the you know along with the wolves and the grizzly bear, sort of this last holdout to me of this this time before we started plowing everything into oblivion and i've always loved lions and of course all wildlife but in where i live uh, i actually live about half time in la and then my home though um is up near yosemite national park in a very rural area uh but there's something about these Los Angeles urban lions that really captured my imagination because they're this last holdout from like the ice age, making it in the second largest city and actually the most densely metropolitan area in the country, even though it's the second largest city um, in the U.S. And boy, what a story and, and what a compelling thing to want to help with, given what these cats are doing on their own just to survive. Mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I 100% agree with you. Um, I work uh, seasonally with California state parks. And so um, half the time I'm up in Lake Tahoe, uh, educating people about black bears. And Mm -hmm. seeing there's just something about seeing a mammal of that size and just knowing, you know, how how ancient they are. It's just there's there's like you said, there's something really magical about seeing that. And it's one thing to see it, you know, in the in the backdrop of, you know, beautiful area like 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 Yosemite or Tahoe, or if we're talking about the grizzly bear, you know, up there in in Yellowstone, that's something. But then you have the Los Angeles area, which is incredibly urbanized. And you have these beautiful species. and that's that's where they live. Their their backdrop, their home is Los Angeles. And so I think that parallel is really interesting. You're seeing these incredible animals living in almost the, you know, the stark opposite of, of what you would imagine uh, their home to be. I agree. And it's been a real, I think, game changer for me. It, it has changed my approach to conservation, my philosophy about conver- conservation. I mean, I'm a national park. Parky. I worked in Yosemite for a decade. I worked in Yellowstone uh, for four years. And, and they're beautiful. And the wildlife there, my God, I had wolves and bison and grizzly bears in my backyard. Um, and when I read about, you know, it was really P-22 that sort of took me down this path of urban wildlife conservation. When I read about that a mountain lion was living in Griffith Park in L.A., Hey, I was just, you know, incredulous. Like, there's no way. I, you know, I mean, the, what would a mountain lion be? Do? Why would he be there? Why, you know, um, 
how did he get there? And because I had really been schooled for most of, you know, for, for my career and that conservation is about, you know, the old North American model. You put aside these these islands of habitat like a Yosemite or a wildlife refuge and you keep the wildlife separate from the people and check the box. They are protected. But, you know, as we know in science, this isn't just science is telling us that's not entirely working. So it's not that you stop putting aside protected places, but you also have to add in that wildlife is needs to be on our human spaces and we need to share our human spaces or else they're not going to make it. Mm. Um, they're not going to have a future for two reasons. One, um, we're plowing everything into oblivion. The number one threat to wildlife is habitat loss. So if we don't work this out where we share, um, you know, they're not going to have anything left. Uh, and two, we know now, again, those islands of habitats, whether it be for mountain lions like we're seeing in L.A. or the smallest creatures, the same national park researchers that I work with, um, you know, they're finding the same genetic collapses in salamanders and in other little creatures. So, you know, we have to solve this large landscape connectivity problem for all wildlife. And that's going to have to include cities and suburbs and urban areas to connect to these other highly protected areas. Uh, and again, that was new to me when, um, you know, uh, that cities, if you had told me five years ago, um, you know, I just finished my stint in Yellowstone that I'd be working most of my time in Los Angeles <laughs> to protect mountain lions in, in all wildlife, I would have laughed at you hysterically. But now it's the future of conservation of these cities. Um, and the last thing I'll add is for people too, 90% of Californians live in urban areas and it's, it's pretty high for most of the rest of the country as well, as we saw with the, you know, electoral college has gotten a lot of uh, attention these days. The, you know, the population centers, you know, people are moving from rural areas to the cities. So if we don't get people connected to nature in those areas, um, we're not going to have people who want to protect wildlife either. So it, in so many levels, the cities really are the future of conservation, which I know for most people is a, a heavy lift, but, um, I, I have since, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, I, I am converted. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so for people that don't live in, in Southern California and specifically LA and have, have never been there or experienced (laughs) the, the population and the traffic, can you, uh, just, just describe, describe Los Angeles as, um, as, as a habitat? How, how do these animals interact with humans? What's the urban scene? And, and I guess what's the, what are they up against, you know, in terms of the Los Angeles sprawl? So it's really interesting. I mean, I was a good before this, you know, I started working in L.A. on the on the on P-22 and the mountain lions and the, the crossing. I'd probably been in L.A. three times and I've been in California for 25 years. I was a, a very proper snobbish northern Californian who, you know, we all bash L.A., um, <laughs> which I now challenge. Um, it is it is an incredible city. Most of the stereotypes are true. The traffic like, I'm sorry, it, it is, there is nowhere else. In fact, it was just ranked the worst in the country because I think what a lot of people, um, if you haven't been there, you don't know, L.A., like if you put, you can fit 10 other major cities uh, in the country in L.A. It is huge. I think D.C. fits in like one corner. San Francisco fits in one corner. New York fits in one corner. You know, the sprawl of it and, and, the, and the length of it um, added with all the freeways with traffic, just make it a monster that is really hard to picture. And, you know, I, I, you know, grew up in Massachusetts, you know, New York city, I'd go to a lot. You just, 
you can't imagine it till you see it. So the stereotype of endless traffic in cars is absolutely true. There's just no way around it. Um, the smog has been cleared up. It, you know, it is urban sprawl probably at its worst. But what it has, which I find really interesting and having done a lot of work in the Bay Area, is nature is embedded in the city. And, you know, the, the Bay Area really, you know, was at the forefront of the open space movement, which really, you know, preserved sort of these vast tracts of open space, but more around the city than in. And you look at a Griffith Park, which is the largest urban you know, park in the country, that's in the middle of the city, right? That's uh, in the middle right there. It's, you know, P-22 doesn't live on the outskirts of L.A. He lives in L.A. I think oh, well, just, just th- to interject for listeners, w- who are you talking about when you're talking about P-22? Sorry, yeah, we haven't brought up. I just assume everybody <laughs> knows him, but, uh, you know, I can't do that. Um, so P-22 is this amazing cat who, uh, when you know, mountain lions, when they are youngsters, uh, they are solitary creatures. And when they come of age, you know, usually about a little under two years, they have to disperse from their mother and find a new home. Um, male mountain lions will fight to the death, uh, for territory. They do not live in prides like, you know, African lions and stuff. Well, when you are growing up in the Santa Monica mountains, which is a big area right to the West of Los Angeles, all the way to the coast, um, you're growing up in one of the most densely populated areas in, uh, or the most densely in the country. So t- their territories are about 250 square miles. So for him, he didn't have a lot of options. He ended up crossing two of the busiest freeways in the country, the 101 and the 405, and marched right into the middle of L.A. to find a new home. Ended up in Griffith Park, which is an island of habitat, and he stayed there, which is remarkable. Griffith Park is eight square miles Mm. of, of green space, and... Mount Lion territory is 250 square miles. So he's doing something no Mount Lion in scientific history, or at least it recorded scientific history, has done, which is stay put. Usually they travel and will move from, uh, you know, place to place, kill a deer, go 10 miles, kill a deer, go 10 miles. But, you know, he can't. He's trapped. He's got Glendale and Burbank. I think he knows if he sort of backtracks and you know, tries to um, get out, he's probably going to get hit by a car that he made it there is miraculous. So he's really the poster child for this need for connectivity and helping these cats survive in an urban landscape. But he's also a poster child for sort of, you know, getting to your original question for that wildlife interface in L.A. In any other place in the country, uh, other than probably California, L.A., this cat would have been shot as soon as he was discovered or at least removed. But L.A.'s like, nope, he belongs here. He's a native son and we're OK with him, even though he's admittedly a dangerous predator. And I think that actually describes this value system that I find remarkable about L.A. But it's also not just him. I'll tell you, I live near Yosemite. I see more coyotes in L.A. than I do in my yard mm. you know, on six acres in the middle of nowhere. Um Nature, like Griffith Park, is embedded there, um, more so than than any city I've seen. And, you know, I just was talking with someone the other day, well, you know, don't, you know, urban places like L.A., aren't they just so pro-wildlife because they don't have to deal with it? I said, I will guarantee you any Angelino is dealing with coyotes on an ongoing basis more than any of you in rural areas, um, which is true. So 
I think, you know, really challenging this notion that there's no wildlife in L.A., which I think is the myth, there's plenty. And it's really exciting to me to see how Angelinos are responding. Mm. Now, it's complicated. It's not perfect. There's a lot of conflicts. But for the most part, they're saying we want the native wildlife here. And that that is just blowing me away and why I'm so proud to work down there on, on this project. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think a little bit surprising for me to hear that. I, you know, I've lived in, lived in Southern California my entire life, um, and I've uh, appreciated wildlife my entire life. But um, my assumption is that people that live in these big cities like Los Angeles would not be um, receptive to the presence of um, big cats and other other wildlife like that. So, do you do you feel like there was already um, a strong reception to you know P twenty two and the other big cats in the area, or has this been something something that your movement has has remedied and helped and educated the public about? Yeah, you know, it's an interesting. It's a good question, and one I think a few things are going on. One is California itself has placed a, a pretty high value on having mountain lions on the landscape. So you're already starting with a foundation in the state overall, um, which you see pretty much everywhere. Yes, there's. I give a, a talk on living with mountain lions, and there's uh, there are plenty of people who just don't want mountain lions here, but they really are in the minority. Um, and we voted, California in 1990 voted up, uh, by ballot measure, Prop 117, to protect mountain lions as a, as a special species here in the state. Um, at least in most of the state, they are not endangered or threatened. Um, you know, it, there's never been a statewide population survey, but um, the general consensus are they're, you know, at least a, a sustainable population across the state. Um, so you already are starting with a base of protection that actually was even, you know, very bipartisan. Ronald Reagan was instrumental in mountain lion protections in the state, which I love, you know, Um <laughs> So so there's that. There's already sort of a statewide value on this. Um, and then you look at L.A. Um, yeah, I think that P-22 and his story uh, has a lot to do with how L.A. is accepting him. And it's not just because it's a, a compelling story that we can relate to, which I think is, is part of it. Uh, a psychologist gave me the term relatable victim because, you know, we all often joke who can't relate to P-22. He's you know trapped in traffic. He's dateless because he's probably <laughs> never going to have a mate there. Um, lonely, you know, in L.A. on a Friday night that that we can all relate to. We've we've all been on the 405 thinking we would die. Um, so, you know, I think, you know, I think people uh, can relate to him. Uh, and by the way, anthropomorphizing is okay. I tell this to scientists. There's nothing wrong with it. You, you, there's a danger of too much, but there's also a danger of too little. If we're going to protect wildlife beyond the scientific community, we have to have a relationship with it. And I'm a scientist as well, uh, you know, science background. So um, we, we need both. Um, so that we've been able to create this, this figure that people can relate to what that leads to is learning more and more about mountain lion behavior. You know, when I give, you know, talks in the schools, they know that P22 can be dangerous and they know that mountain lions can be dangerous, but, but they also know how, and they put, you know, that they, they're learning about mountain lion biology, mountain lion behavior. And the more familiarity we can have with our wild neighbors, 
um, you know, the less conflicts are going to arise. If, if you know not to, you know, there are certain things you shouldn't do um, in mountain lion territory or when coyotes are in your yard, the greater ch- success, you know, chance of success that encounters are going to end without harm to either party, um, which really even now is the way the majority of wildlife encounters mm. end with both people and wildlife, you know, nothing happening. Um, so, so yeah, I do think P22 has sort of taught people as well about what it means to be a neighbor to a mountain lion and mountain lions. Obviously there are mountain lions all across the Santa Monica mountains and LA that the national park service researchers study. Uh, and there's no doubt there's issues, there's issues with livestock, there's issues. Um, but it's, something that's being talked about and that's a a win you know the la times has a cougar beat you know i mean they report (laughs) on these animals tell me any other major paper in the country that regularly reports on you know mountain lions uh and does i mean p22 is on the front page of the la times took up three quarters of it uh it was like a month ago so i think he's started this dialogue which can be tough at times like when he munched on the koala in the LA zoo, for those of you who don't know, the LA zoo is in Griffith park and you know, the, they had a, I think it was a nine foot fence. Well, mountain lions can jump 15 feet. So he yeah, allegedly, although I think, you know, this isn't, you know, making of a murder. I think it's pretty clear he did it. <laughs> you know, he, I mean, I don't know any other animal that could jump in and out with a koala in its mouth. Um, but he, he munched on the poor koala. Uh, and I think, again, for any other place in the country, that would have been it. But no, L.A. largely rallied around him. The L.A. Zoo themselves said, our bad, uh, you know, our fence That's wasn't amazing. Yeah. high enough. Uh, and what was even really cool to me is the rest of the country and the world took notice of this. Like, if you look at the L.A. Times and Washington Post and BBC headlines, they're commenting on, wow, what a shift. What is going on in L.A.? You know, that they're they're okay with this that there's a mountain lion there and they're like, no, we want them. So yeah, I, I think it's remarkable what's going on. And I think that the value system is changing um, based on both science and I think more empathy for what this, what these wildlife go through. Mm. Yeah, that's, uh, that's fantastic. I, I, I think the, the core of all this is education and, uh, letting people know what the facts are, what the myths are about these animals. There are a lot of um, misconceptions about uh, mountain lions. And um, would you, would you mind, you know, dispelling some of, some of the misconceptions and some of the mythology surrounding mountain lions? Sure. One of the myths is that, you know, and it's, I don't think this is unique to mountain lions, but all large predators that they're just waiting there, you know, in the woods, ready to jump out on us, <laughs> you know, and that's just not the case. Um, I've hiked alone for the most part. I, I love hiking solitary for 30 years and some of, you know, Yellowstone being one of them where, you know, there was grizzly bears and, and wolves and, um, and honestly, the, the animal that scared me, scares me the most are ticks. I, you know, yes. I, um, <laughs> I have had close-up encounters with grizzlies and wolves and bears and mountain lions. And I I think, you know, both sides tend to either overplay or, um, you know, underplay the risks. There is no doubt there are risks. These are wild animals. They are wild and unpredictable. But the risks are really so low, and they do not see us as prey. 
And I think that's one of the myths to dispel. Mountain lions are not sitting there waiting to take down humans for prey. Uh, if they were, we probably would all be dead because they are extremely mm-hmm. good hunters. They are ghost cats. You know, uh, you're not going to see them if they come after you for the most part. They yeah. really are good at stealth hunting and they are just not sitting there waiting for us. They avoid us. P-22 is such a good example of this. They have in the trail cam at like five in the morning, him just sitting there for some reason he's sitting in the, the trail cam snapping shots and five seconds later, this jogger goes by and he's moved like five feet into the bush. You know, he's choosing to avoid us, as do most mountain lions. Mm-hmm. It's not that attacks don't occur, but they're pretty rare. We've had six deaths in California in the last hundred years, which, of course, it is terrible. We don't want anybody dying from mountain lions or from, you know, from any anything. But put the risk in perspective, um, when you look at the tens of thousands of injuries and deaths by cars yeah. in the United States yeah. every year. Um, I think if you really are concerned about human safety, mountain lion is way down on your list and there's other things you can address. You know, I know I'm going to die on the 101 and I'd much rather be attacked <laughs> by a mountain lion. Uh, I'm on the 101 so much. I just know it's coming. Um, so I think that's one myth to dispel that they're, you know, there's just these, you know, for any wildlife, you know, wolves, grizzly bears, they really don't see us as prey. It's not that they, aren't dangerous or can't be dangerous, but healthy respect and knowledge about how to behave correctly minimizes most of the risk. You know, don't go hiking at 2 a.m. in Griffith Park and, you know, you've just minimized most of your risk uh, by being attacked by P-22. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, Yeah. And like you said, the same goes for you know, other big predators. I, I tell the same thing to people that I talk to up in Tahoe about black bears, you know? Um, So, I want to I want to go now to the 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 hashtag that uh, so, so, so the hashtag save LA Cougars um, who who started that movement and um, talk a little bit about it. Sure. Yeah, that that's a fun one. So when when I when I first became aware of P22, I just started writing a book um, and it became a very different book because of him. But I read the story of P22 in the LA Times in 2012 and called up Jeff Sickich, who is just an amazing person. He's one of my heroes. He's also become a friend. He is the national park, one of the National Park Service biologists working on the project, along with Seth Riley. Uh, just two, two remarkable people. So I called uh, up the Park Service and said, you know, would you be willing to, uh, I'd like to learn more about this. I, I don't believe it. Is that really true? <laughs> and uh, Jeff was really gracious enough to take me out for the day. We tracked P-22. But he also showed me, you know, sort of P-22's, you know, environment and pointed out the other mountain lines and what they were going through. So at the end of the day, I said to him, wow, you know, I mean, I had just come down here for, you know, a story for the book, but how can I help? I, I had just started my job with the National Wildlife Federation. I said, how, how can we help? And, he, you know, two things he told me. One is their research is not fully funded every year. And then two, well, there's this little wildlife crossing we've been trying to, to get built um, for for a while. And I was like, oh, you know, naive me. Sure. I didn't know it was, you know, a $60 million project at the time. I'm like, sure, well, I'll help. No problem. Uh, and that's where Save LA Cougars was born. Um, I started the campaign. Uh, we have a great group of advisors um, and it's to get that wildlife crossing built. And But to also what often gets overlooked is to make sure the National Park Service research continues uh, and we obviously approached it in a very different way than 
uh, some conservation work. We wanted to ensure this reach people outside of the environmental bubble. And I can tell you it, it gives, you know, even um, some people in my own organization, some more traditional conservationists pause when I'm running around in L.A. with a cardboard cutout. Uh, or that, you know, P22 has a Facebook page where he talks to people. I love, by the way, it's amazing. (laughs) Um, We're about to come out with cougar trading cards for all um, 53 cats. Uh, So, and I agree with you, it's cute and it's fun and it's it's attracting attention, but not just for, to get attention. Um, It leads people into this, educational process, even almost tricking them into it. So I can tell you a lot of Angelinos can talk pretty confidently about mountain lion biology or know what to do if, you know, you're on the landscape with a mountain lion um, and how to be safe. So uh, I like that it's not just fun for fun's sake, but that it is it is really educating people about not just mountain lions, but how to coexist well with all wildlife. Mm. And it's going to get this wildlife crossing. You know, we, we owe that to P22. Uh, they had been talking about this wildlife crossing for, for 20 years, or at least a quarter there. They knew this was a place they needed. The 101 is such a huge barrier to these cats. I mean, it is. we talk a lot about walls in our political discourse. This is the wall. These cats are genetically isolated, and they just cannot get across this road. Um, so this connection point, has been talked about for a long time, but all of a sudden you get P22 on the scene and now it's becoming a reality. Again, I think it's because we changed the dialogue from something, you know, admittedly very scientific languagey, like, you know, increasing biodiversity and large landscape connectivity to help save cats like P22 who get hit by cars. Game changer. Hmm. Yeah, I I feel social media, especially uh, the, the hashtag that you created mm-hmm. and P22's Facebook page, it's it's kind of this new form of interpretation. I feel like it's yeah. this this new device that is is accessible, understandable, relatable. It's it's fun, it's funny and kids get it. And it, like you yep. said, you're almost tricking people in, into caring about <laughs> it, which is one of the best ways to do it. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, to touch on your point, my favorite part of this is working in the schools. The L.A. school district, especially on um, local district Northwest, has been such a partner in this. And we had P22 Day in Urban Wildlife Week last year. Mark your calendars this year, October 15th through 22nd. Big festival in Griffith Park at the end. And we retraced P22's route. You know, we hiked 50 miles last year to show what he had to go through. Um, but the kids get it. Um, you mean, you're right. The kids, and again, they, you know, they read letters to P22 at the, you know, at the festival and those letters for them were making personal connections that are gonna make them lifelong stewards to wildlife. One kid in his letter said, I'm sorry, you're scared and lonely in Griffith Park. I've been there. I know how it feels to be scared and lonely. I mean, you know, I, I we were in tears, um, but the kids get it and they are learning and they're learning to dispel the myths as well. So talking about mountain lions to a person who <laughs> I always like to ask this question. Um, so why are mountain lions important to um, right. the ecosystem, specifically in the L.A. area? If you're talking to someone that doesn't necessarily care about wildlife, why should they care about P-22 and other mountain lions in the area? That's a a really good question. Uh, And I was just doing job interviews with a staff physician. I actually asked a version of that. Like, what would you tell somebody? (laughs) You know, I think people break into a few 
multiple buckets. There's like, especially, and I think this is true for any issue, but especially wildlife, there's, you know, 10 to 20% of the people are just like, in. I don't need to convince them. They're like, mountain lions should be here. They're a native part of the landscape. We, you know, ruin their habitat. We're in. And then there's probably about 10% of the people who I'm never going to convince. I don't care what argument I use. They do not think mountain lions or large predators should be anywhere near people or on the landscape at all. That it is our duty as humans to obliterate them. So, you know, I, I don't worry about them either because, you know, I'm just not going to. Um, but I think, you know, say 70, 80% of the population, you know, uh, just education does the job. And what I usually tell people, depending on what's important to them, you know, if you are someone who at least likes nature, you know, you can use the angle that they are a beautiful part of the ecosystem. They are they are something that's magical to have here and a part of the native fauna. And I think that a lot of people, it breaks down, you can just stop there. They like, even if they never see one, they like knowing that we haven't destroyed this environment so much that mountain lions can still be here. And they, they are proud that LA or anywhere can still support a cat. So that's, that's one argument. Um, you can also, if you're talking to more scientifically inclined, you know, folks, there's also the, the fact that mountain lions complete an ecosystem and that when you pull the top predator out, science shows can have devastating consequences. And I'll often use the argument, you know, do you want the Santa Monica mountains to be so full of deer like new England where I grew up that, you know, they're just so overpopulated they're out of control and then that just trickles down the, mm. you know, the, the line. I mean, if you pull the mountain line out and deer get out of control, vegetation, you know, whatever, there's, uh, you know, you start impacting all of the flora and fauna in the area. Uh, so there's the sort of scientific rigor that mountain lions are an essential part of keeping an ecosystem whole. And then the other bucket I usually use is some practical, uh, you know, <laughs> So, all right, if you're not concerned about, you know, the value of wildlife and you're not concerned about ecosystem management, how about this? Um, your day-to-day life is impacted by the mountain lion there. Again, keeping that ecosystem whole can be held, is, is just as essential to the health of humans. Look at the East Coast, for example, with the incidences of Lyme disease. Mm-hmm. Um, they are talking about, or at least scientists have thrown out there, the idea of reintroducing the cougar back there. Because it would keep Lyme disease under control because they'd be taking out the deer populations that are out of control. So, you know, you can you can also look at the real practical component of the, the health of the ecosystem is tied into our health. And mountain lions uh, are essential to that. So how healthy is the, the population uh, in that area right now? Mm-hmm. So that is, yeah, as I told you, mountain lions uh, across California, for the most part, I mean, it's hard to say this definitively because there's never been a, a statewide survey. Um, that, you know, some people will say mountain lion populations are increasing. There's absolutely no proof for that. And in fact, more of the data, especially related to depredation permits points to it's pretty stable. Um, there was an increase, at least in depredation permits, right when Prop 17 was passed, which makes sense, right? If you're stopping the hunting of mountain lions, except for special cases, uh, mountain lion populations are going to start increasing a little bit because they, you know, were, were held back. And also you're going to have more conflict. But then it pretty much started leveling out to decreasing. Um, so at least we think mountain lion populations in a lot of the state are, are doing at least okay and, and have pretty much stabilized. They're extremely self-regulating animals. That's the other, the myth you asked. These mountain lions aren't going to you know, reproduce uh, like rabbits or something where they, you know, they're just all over. They will. They kill each other for territory. So they they are they do the job themselves about self-regulating. Mm-hmm. 
But so the, the Southern California mountain lions, and this is not just L.A., this extends down to the San Diego area as well, um, are not doing well. And in fact, the Santa Monica mountain lions, um, Seth Riley, the scientist I mentioned, um, did some modeling and just released a study that pretty much proves what we were you know, saying anecdotally um, for a while, which is that these this population of cats, of which P-22 is a part of, the Santa Monica Mountain Lions, are on the verge of extinction if we don't do something. Because of these freeways and because they cannot get across them to mate and because new mountain lions can't come in to bring genetic diversity, um, genetically they are collapsing and indeed are approaching levels close to the Florida panther, which, as we know, was at one time, you know, they they were to the point of showing birth defects. We're not quite there yet, but we're we're getting nervous. So they have 50 years at best based on the genetic, the modeling they did for, for this genetic collapse. 50 years sounds like a long time. Well, it's really not. But what that study didn't include is it was just really looked at if no new mountain lions came in with new genetic material, how long would it take? What it didn't include was cats getting killed by cars, by rodenticides, you know, you name it. And you start having that happen, which it does all the time, and that time frame goes down significantly. There's only a few breeding males in the Santa Monica Mountains. They're breeding, you know, with their daughters and granddaughters at times. But if you take one of those out or two of those out, and, you know, we just lost three mountain lions uh, over the holidays, and then the year before lost four. Boy, that is game over sooner. And, um, you know, the P-45 situation, or are you familiar with, you know, his uh, yeah. notoriety? Uh, <laughs> you know that. Um, Can you explain you know, he, to, to listeners? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, um, P-45 started, uh, has been preying on um, animals like alpacas and, and goats in the Malibu area. And I, you know, as someone who's a uh, an animal owner myself, I think, you know, it, it is a terrible thing to have uh, your animals killed. And I, you know, we want, I think what we try to do, and we work with groups like the mountain lion foundation who does great outreach and project coyote. Um, how can we coexist together? Um, knowing that there are things you can do to prevent that, but he, um, did take down some alpacas for this woman who owned a ranch there. And at first she had applied for a depredation permit, but the outcry was, just, you know, I mean, again, this is one of those koala moments where L.A. said, no way can you you kill that cat. You know, the, the alpacas, you need to protect them. Uh, and the mountain lions were here first. And if he was just doing what a mountain lion does, which is if, if he comes across unprotected animals, he's going to he's going to he's going to take them down. I mean, for those of us who have cats, we know if you put a cat in a closed room with 10 mice, even if they weren't hungry, those mice are not going to be there anymore. Um, so the outcry was pretty bad. And it wasn't just this sort of, oh, we don't want a mountain lion killed. It's that he was one of the few males in the area. So if he was shot, that would significantly impact the success of the population. Uh, so, you know, it's continuing to be an issue, but I think, again, it, it, it's it's great that groups like, you know, the Mountain Lion Foundation is in there trying to work with the livestock owners. We donated the money for one pen for, for the, the person who had the P45 depredation, mm-hmm. um, and some of these other pens are going up. But the, the problem is far from over, so, um, you know, we really need to come together and, and solve it, because if not, that could happen again, and 
we start talking about the loss of the entire population uh, if if individual animals are are going to get picked off. Yeah, <laughs> that's it's, it's a lot going on. Um, mm-hmm. I'm I'm glad we're able to talk about this though because I feel like th- there's a lot that I'm learning as well, and a lot. I hopefully a lot of listeners are learning too, but. We talked about a lot of the struggles facing these big cats. So now let's talk about the proposed uh, yes. wildlife crossing. The solution. The let's solution. So is, is, is this the end-all, be-all solution? Is this going to help all the big cats in the area? Talk a little bit about why exactly the specific location, why that location. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I guess also talk maybe to people that don't know what a wildlife crossing is and also sure. to people um, that say... Uh, why don't why don't we just physically move these cats? Why do we need a natural right. crossing? Yeah, first of all, to the the idea of moving, I get that question a lot uh, about P twenty two, especially. Why don't we just move them, or why don't we bring them a girlfriend? Right, because the poor guy's lonely. <laughs> what the biologist will tell you is is relocation just rarely works for mountain lions. You're you're talking about you know the death of the mountain lion or mountain lions in the territory that you put them in. Um, you know they are animals we don't know why they choose where they live i don't know why p22 chose griffith park and if you moved him he may actually try to move to go back um but more importantly you'd be you know where there is mountain lion habitat there are mountain lions so there's no like mountain lion you know heaven where you know there's no other cats right now so you'd be plopping cats down into a mountain lion's existing territory and that's not going to end well it also speaks to the human safety issue that you know if you're plopping him down or you know mountain lion down in strange territory that you know he's disoriented he you know that's where they can get into trouble as well uh to the we but the bigger question of can you just keep moving mountain lions around for the genetic diversity well yeah i you know we've talked to the biologists about that my god that would cost more money than to build the crossing you'd have mm-hmm. to be moving mountain lions around for the rest of you know it, it, until you to keep them there forever uh you you know it, it, moving them once isn't going to help with the genetic diversity you'd have to keep rotating these poor cats and i don't particularly think they'd like helicopter rides or anything <laughs> um, but this yeah this crossing it is certainly not going to fix everything but it fixes for the santa monica mountain cats a huge part of the problem the scientists with the National Park Service and, and others have been looking at this area for, as we said, decades as part of the mountain lion study, which they've been undertaking since 20, uh, since 2002. You know, they have collared cats and they have radio tracked other animals. They have over 70,000 GPS points in the study. And a lot of them point to the 101 being a major blockage. Um, unlike the 118, which uh, a lot of people say, why aren't you putting something there? You know, cats... Those cats just got killed there more recently. Well, that's sort of a, um, you know, it's a little misleading because the 118, they actually have more success crossing. So more cats are crossing there. The 101, most of them don't even try. It's just a daunting obstacle that they have all these GPS points that get up to the 101 and turn around, get up to the 101 and turn around. So they just can't get across these 10 lanes of pavement. So what this will do is allow for movement both north and south of the freeway, in one of the last corridors that exists there from north to south, and allow these cats to move pretty much from Malibu all the way up to the Simi Hills, and then, you know, better access to, like I call it, the promised land, Los Padres National Forest, which is like, I think, 3,000, you know, square miles of, of, um, you know, wilderness they can get lost in. But the 101 right now is preventing that. The cats that are south of it are stuck there, and the cats that are north of it 
can't get down there, thus causing the genetic isolation. And um, the crossing itself, very exciting um, to, to be a part of it at this phase. You know, we are really happy to work with all the partners like Caltrans and, and the Park Service and the Santa Monica Mountains Fund and the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy. A lot of these organizations have been working in that area for a long time. And uh, National Wildlife Federation is just proud to bring this to the, to the finish line. It is going to be a very, it's a visionary project. It is the largest urban wildlife crossing built in the world. Mm. It is, uh, this has never been done. You look at wildlife crossings in other places, and basically these are land bridges that look like the greenscape to help facilitate wildlife movement. And they work. Uh, They work really well. I just visited one in Colorado, which they had finished. And within a few days, the, the deer started using it. Uh, it's, it's quite remarkable. Um, so the, um, the crossing right now is underway. We are in a really boring period called the environmental documents, uh, phase. So I don't like have a lot of exciting things to share unless you like (laughs) legal, you know, ease. Uh, but I go to Caltrans meetings and we have the, them funded through, um, August and September to complete that phase. And then we go into final design and engineering. And if I keep doing my job and we we raise the funds and that's going to take help from everybody, uh, we will have this built by 2021, uh, early 2022. And it is needed. Uh, If we don't do this, uh, I can assure you that the mountain lions will not remain in the Santa Monica Mountains. Mm. That's how dire the situation Mm -hmm. is. Yeah. So it it sounds like, (laughs) Beth, it sounds like you're really uh, the person who's making this happen it sounds like if if you weren't there this wouldn't be happening i i don't know if it's me i i like to i mean a there we have so many partners playing so many vital pieces on this i mean it wouldn't happen if we didn't have talented engineers at caltrans or like clark stevens it wouldn't happen if the park service wasn't doing their research you know it wouldn't happen if senator pavley and the santa monica mountains conservancy hadn't preserved the land um but, yeah, uh, you know, I will take credit for being the one who's willing to be goofy and walk around L.A. with the cutout. So, you know. <laughs> and it's helping. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm glad I could what I what I more feel like is I've provided that last piece to the puzzle, mm. which was needed, which was, you know, that sort of advocate for getting this built uh, on the public sphere. Um, so it, it's been an amazing community to work with and. You know, we all work really hard, but yeah, I'm the one who's willing to walk around with the goofy cutout. <laughs> <laughs> so how how has the crossing um, been received by the public and uh, what's been the biggest struggle? Has funding been an issue? Yeah, this is both, you know, the easiest and the hardest conservation issue I've ever worked on in my career. And in some respects, it's you can it's challenging in that it's 60 million dollars. I mean, you know. But I, I actually don't even think it's that challenging. $60 million is not that big a price tag to make an ecosystem that we've always spent, already spent hundreds of millions of dollars to keep whole. And that will contribute not just to the health of mountain lions, but to all wildlife and to people. So that to me seems a pretty small price tag. But the easier part of this, and it's LA, my God, I mean, you know, you mean $50 million is nothing in, in this area. But I think the the bigger piece that makes it really easy is there's no bad guy here. You know, I mean, every, the, there's no one I have to fight. There's, you know, uh, w- with a lot of conservation work, like the land's protected. 
The city of Agora Hills has been a great partner where it's being located. They passed a city resolution saying we're supportive of it. Uh, Caltrans, it's their road. They're in. Uh, you know, again, the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy and the MRCA protected the land. The Park Service, who oversee the mountain lion research, are in. So this there's no bad guy. I don't have to fight. This is simply a matter of somebody writing a check. That's all that's standing in the way. Mm. So, boy, that's an easy one. Um, you know, it, it, this, it, this is something that is inherently achievable because all it requires is funding as opposed to I have to fight an opposition. You know, there, it, there's absolutely a very small, op- you know, there's no like formalized opposition. But yes, the people who just don't want mountain lions on the landscape, I cannot convince. And, and that's a pretty small portion um, and indeed, there is evidence that this will actually you will see less mountain lions because right now they can't escape from urban areas. This is going to give them freedom to move a little more. The only other opposition we've had, which we've been able to actually dispel um, it mostly because of our approach, is we get, oh, my God, you're wasting 60 million dollars on mountain lions when that could be used for hospitals or you know bridges. And um, we are actually not focusing on taxpayer dollars. Um, This is private philanthropy. We're hoping the community will step up. The only place we're using um, government funds is for for dollars already allocated towards conservation. That means they have to be spent on conservation projects. So those are really the two areas where we get, you know, some small opposition. But that's it. This is a matter of writing a check. And that that's Mm -hmm. why to me it it, we're going to get it done. Yeah, it sounds like you're pretty much in business and just, you know, kind of waiting for the pieces to fall into place. Um, but I I was just in Banff um, in October oh, cool. for the Banff Film Festival, and I I had I was so excited to see the wildlife crossing there, the the bridge there, and they had all of these wildlife fences too. But um, that that was just amazing to see. Once you see it in action and you drive underneath it. It's it's really amazing, and and I I really am glad to hear that a lot of people are on board with that because I feel like uh, for LA to have you know not only uh, this crossing but the, the world's largest wildlife crossing that would be a big source of pride uh, you know for someone who's lived in Southern California and, and I I feel like this is something definitely uh, that will happen hopefully soon you know we we talked in length about the the dire situation a lot of these animals are in you, you know do you think t- 2021 is soon enough at any at any point any one of these animals can try and make that trek across the 101 right no it's it's a good question i i do i mean there's i can't give a definitive answer i think we're all in agreement it probably is it's about the fastest it can be built mm. we get asked mm-hmm. that a lot can you speed it up you really can't. I mean, this is a public um, process. And indeed, 2021 is not that far away. But like just for example, Caltrans, when they do a project, it has to be out to bid for six months at minimum. That's a legal requirement. So you just they have to take a certain amount of time to do the environmental documents phase and then do public comments. So, you know, this isn't like a private piece of land. You can put up a house as fast as you can on. So I, I will say all the partners are working at a, a pretty, pretty fast speed. Um, as again, they are funded through this year. Um, we have a $10 million goal to the end of 2017 to keep them 
going uh, with no stoppage, which will get the plans to shovel ready. And then we'll start on the construction dollars, which is another story. We're already at $3 million. Uh, the State Coastal Conservancy put up a million. And then the Annenberg, we you know also thank them. They showed leadership and put up a, a million as well. So we have $7 million to go by the end of the year. Um, we are working really hard on that, and I, I think we'll make it. Um, but uh, I think it's going to be fast enough. I think if it looked like you know, if, if we had some, I think it's fine as long as we don't have some catastrophic events. And I think that uh, if we did, uh, we may look at how to intervene uh, would be my guess that the scientists. So let's say all three males get taken out by cars or rodenticides in the next, you know, six months. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Um, but then I think we'd be looking at, okay, how do we maintain until we get there? Mm-hmm. But I, I think we'll be okay. But that's one of the reasons we're using private philanthropy is that if we were going the whole route of lobbying for federal fund, transportation dollars and stuff like that, that takes a lot longer time horizon. So, yeah. you know, I will say, I say this in fundraising, whoever writes the check or checks know that you really, you are saving a population of mountain lions. This isn't an abstract, like you will be saving them. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I wish I, you know, I always say this, I'd be the best rich person. Uh, me know? too, I know. <laughs> you know, I we, we, we would dedicate all of our, all of our money to conservation issues and, you know. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's talk big picture. Say, sure. um, you know, say we've, we've got this crossing implemented, uh, mountain lines are crossing happily. We don't have, you know, as many issues in urban spaces. So what's the future of, um, this population in the Santa Monica mountains in your opinion? I think if we can get this crossing built, yeah, I think it's good. I I think the awareness is so high. I think people for the most part want them there. I think we need to sort out the livestock issues, uh, which I think is doable. I think a lot of people have proven they want to work. You know, Natalie Riggs is someone I, we work with, she had two of her goats killed, you know, her her, her goats, she had names for, I think it was Blanca and and I forget the other one's name by a mountain lion. And instead of demonizing lions, she worked with the biologist and um, protected the rest of her livestock and now is a volunteer for our campaign. So I think we get that figured out. Um, The one-on-one bridge up is absolutely vital, but also looking at, and Caltrans is really willing, how we can improve some of these other roads for not just mountain lions, but all wildlife. So, Listen, this when this crossing goes in, it's going to start, in my um, uh, mind, a snowball effect, not just for L.A., but for all urban areas, showing what's possible. And that is my hope. And I already have my eye on the next crossing we want to do, which is on the five, um, ah. which is another barrier. Yeah. So this isn't the end, uh, although my husband would probably like to hear I would take a break. But, you know, um, we're looking at how to make connectivity not just in LA, but across the state, I sit on a statewide connectivity sort of, um, committee talking about other projects. Like on the 17, they're putting in a, a near Santa Cruz, a tunnel for wildlife. Um, and the other thing I'll add, we're also have this complimentary project in LA that I work on, which is just as inspirational to me as the crossing, which is how to create connectivity on a smaller scale using the schoolyards, people's backyards. We have what we call a certified wildlife habitat program where people can sign up and say, um, I'm going to do something for wildlife by putting in like native milkweed for monarchs or a bird bath. Mm. And what we did was map those out um, with this great firm, Mia Laren Associates, and look at how we can actually start strategically using those and making connections across the city using private space for the much smaller creatures like bees and, and butterflies and frogs. And that to me is just as exciting. And 
personally, I think the future of urban wildlife conservation, you're going to see a lot. There's an urban wildlife um, conservation conference being hosted in San Diego in June by the Wildlife Society that I'll be talking at. Um, and I'm just excited to see what other cities are doing. National Wildlife Federation, we have a, a big program in Baltimore, Austin, other cities like Denver. So this is really catching fire, mm -hmm. A, because I think it captures people's imagination. You know, I don't know anybody who doesn't respond to wildlife. You know, I even used to joke, Dick Cheney, you know, he stops when he sees a bald eagle, right? Although he's coming out as the good guy these days, I think, yeah. <laughs> relatively. Um, but everybody responds to wildlife. So I think it, it's one of those bipartisan issues that I think we can all get around. And honestly, when you see people responding to seeing a frog, I was just out with school kids who we spent two hours looking at ladybugs we had found in the middle of the city. Oh. Uh, I think it, it, it gets at something that we just instinctually respond to that makes us feel better. And then tying it into if we are making this healthier for wildlife in cities, we're making it healthier for people. The two are so inextricably linked. And that's why I think this this movement's really catching on. Mm -hmm. oh, oh, I am so excited mm -hmm. to see what, you know, what happens with that. And I think it's going to be really incredible. And uh, I just also want to add to all the listeners who've been listening to this entire episode and cringing at the fact that Beth and I have been inserting the in in front of all of the freeway <laughs> numbers. That is the correct way to say it in That's Southern California. Correct. And we are proud of it. Um, the, the freeways have just as much personality. Yes, they do. They, we, we anthropomorphize our freeways. <laughs> Um, and just finally, I know um, you, you actually have a book out. It's called uh, When Mountain Lions Are Neighbors. Can you just briefly talk about talk about that? And uh, yeah, Pete, a, it was really a labor of love. And it, it was written, all proceeds go back to the wildlife work. I don't get any royalties, awesome. which my dad was like, are you crazy? But <laughs> uh, it, it started out on as just a book on urban wildlife. I mean, on, on California wildlife. Uh, I had worked with Heyday Books for years and when I started this job, they're like, you know, there's really no good modern book on California wildlife. But what it really morphed into, and this is really, again, P22 inspired, it was more a book on this coexistence in urban and human spaces. Uh, and uh, I had so much fun writing it. There's five main chapters telling five stories of how people and wildlife are sort of working it out in some unusual places. P22, of course, being the cover story. Um, but there's the Facebook foxes. There's a family of foxes that lives on the Facebook campus and the employees aren't petting them or feeding them, but they're coexisting. Um, there's the bears in Yosemite, how Yosemite solved its bear problem, which, you know, we think of Yosemite as wilderness, but it's kind of a small city in Yosemite Valley uh, by they solved their their It wasn't a bear problem. It was a people problem mm -hmm. that the bears were being punished for, you know, people Bad bringing habits. their food and, yep. and leaving it out. Um there's the wolf coming back to California and how 80% of Californians support that. I That we have wolves here is one of the most amazing. I'm, I'm so glad I'm here to see that mm -hmm. after a 90-year absence. Um, but there's also all uh, about 50 other um, stories that we tie into the main chapter that we have sort of these sidebars for. Uh, one is like the desert tortoise being saved by the, you know, the U.S. Marine Corps. Um so I think, that, again, this, this book really gets at a, what we've just spent the last hour talking about, which is, is that how do we share our space successfully? And this book is all about the good news. I mean, there's enough bad news I have to deal with. This book really celebrates people and wildlife 
as the subtitle says, working it out. Um, and I, my, I salute the wildlife for being willing to work it out with us. And I salute the people who are, you know, really challenges, challenging this notion that we have to sort of keep wildlife at a distance. And, you know, we as, as everyday citizens can't do much to help them. Um, I think we can and we need to. Amazing. Yeah. And it's, it's not just, you know, this whole conversation, we've been focused on mountain lions, but it's not just mountain lions as, as neighbors, it's all wildlife as neighbors and, and integrating uh, our, our lives around them and not excluding them from the conversation. Um, that is well said. I mean, I joke, we could have also titled titled the book when monarch butterflies are neighbors. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, monarch butterflies yeah. are, are decreasing in yeah, some places. It's so They're scary. By 90%. And you know what? We don't need um, anybody but ourselves to, or I should say, we can be a huge part of that solution by just planting milkweed in our yard. Um, Everybody can do that. Even if you have an apartment balcony, you can do that. So uh, I like how you put it. it, The conversation needed to change, and I'm I'm glad to see it is. And so uh, finally, how can listeners help? What can they do? Yeah, I think um, two ways. If if P22 and the Crossing has uh, picked your interest, uh, uh go. Um, you know, obviously, um, funding is one thing that's much appreciated, but it's not the only thing. You can sign up for our mailing list. You can volunteer. Um, but I think the, the other way that all of us can help, whether you're interested in that, you know, building this, this monumental wildlife crossing or not, is just what I said. We can all do simple things for wildlife in our everyday lives. Whether it be planting uh, native plants or putting in, you know, uh, bird baths or something to give wildlife uh, a, a shot to share our space and increase habitat, actually reclaiming some of the habitat they've lost. It doesn't take much. It doesn't have to be these pristine natural areas to to help them. So I think that's one way. And also simple everyday things, too, like slowing down when you're driving. Um, you know, I'll slow down and pick the frogs going across the roads, but also doing things, simple things to make sure that you ensure wildlife be successful. Don't leave pet food outside. Uh, if you have cats, I have two cats, they should be indoors. They, you know, they can be devastating to native wildlife populations. Um, don't leave your garbage unprotected if, if you, you know, so because you will have coyote or bear problems if you live in their territory. Um, you know, even simple things like if you're having a rat problem, don't use poison. There are things you can do to ensure rats don't come in the house that are much less lethal. Um, you know, we don't even get me started on the, the whole rodenticide issue. Um, so I think that, you know, looking at how our actions impact wildlife and the simple things we can do every day. We're, we can all do that. That is that. Those are very simple things that we can do to help ensure a future for wildlife. Absolutely. And P22 has a Facebook page, right? He does. P22 <laughs> Mountain Lion of Hollywood. Uh, he uh, it is my favorite thing uh, ever to do um, <laughs> in conservation. And but when I tell people it's me in talks, they're like, it's like I've told them Santa isn't real. They're like, really? And, and I'm like, well, it's not him, you know, uh, but no, it's it's a lot of fun and people, what I love is people really, you know, aside from the fun matchmaking, I mean, people promote, propose dates for him all the time. <laughs> um, people do care. And, and that it comes through on the page, um, you know, where, where people are responding and asking him questions. And that's been really um, rewarding to watch. 
Thank you so much, Beth. I really, really appreciate, you know, you sitting down and, and chatting with me. And I hope a lot of listeners have gained something from the conversation that we had. And I'll link up all of the the, the links to uh, your work and all the websites related to your projects on our website so that people can access all of that. Um, but I just really want to thank you so much for w what you're doing for the big cats and urban carnivores and just, uh, you know, L.A. wilderness in general. Well, thank you for having me. And, yeah, it's been and, I, you know, thank you for raising attention to this. And, you know, I also thank L.A. They're, you know, the citizens there are really stepping up. And that's that's been fun to watch. Awesome. Thank you. And so thank P22. And thank P22. Absolutely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so that was my conversation with awesome scientist and environmental advocate Beth Pratt, the California director for the National Wildlife Federation, and as we've discovered, the secret voice of P22. All of the resources mentioned in this episode can be found on the show notes page for this episode, which you can find at wildlensinc.org slash EOC116. If you enjoyed this episode of the show, you can subscribe to the EOC podcast on iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. Your feedback is really important to us, and you can leave an honest rating and review on iTunes for our show. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in iTunes or click the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens, and today's interview was produced and edited by myself, Serena Simons, and co-host Matt Podolsky. And finally, a big thanks to Kendra Kenyon over at Advocates for the West. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs>